Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the life of Jacob with James Jordan. Here, Jordan's going to be in Genesis chapter 31, where Jacob decides to leave Laban. We really hope that you enjoy and are edified by this talk. And here is James Jordan in Genesis chapter 31. We looked last week at Jacob's plot of striped and speckled and spotted sheep. And one thing that I am thinking more about this present week, I happen to be working on the passage in Matthew 25 that deals with the Last Judgment where Jesus separates sheep and goats. And what's a little bit odd about that is that in the Levitical system, well, to start with, there's no place in the Bible where goats are bad and sheep are good. They're never said to be that way. And the commentators struggle to find passages in the prophets and so forth that talk about separating sheep and goats. But it's always separating bad goats and good goats and bad sheep and good sheep in Ezekiel and places like that. And if you go back to Leviticus, on the Day of Atonement, you've got two goats. One goat that represents the righteous and is sent up to God, they're forgiven, and the other one that's sent out to destruction. So you can assume that Jesus just comes up with something new or puts a new spin on things when he talks about sheep and goats. And that's true enough, but it's also true that there's nothing in the New Testament that's not somewhere in the Old Testament first. Everything is foreshadowed. And I came to the conclusion that one of the ways in which one of the important backgrounds of it is this passage itself, remembering that goats are black and sheep are white. Now that contrast does exist in the Bible. And that the sacrificial sheep is a sheep without blemish. And Jesus is pointed out as the, the one whose hair is like white wool and there's no spot or blemish in him and so forth. So I think that in terms of what Jesus says, you've got sheep that are white over here on the right, goats that are black over here on the left. And what Jacob's flock is, and this is where it becomes interesting, it's a flock of goats that are partly white and sheep that are dark. I don't know that the sheep have spots on them, but they're spoken of as being darker. I guess I don't know enough about sheep. Are there spotted sheep, or do sheep just kind of come in one color that's either white or a little bit darker than white? At any rate, whatever the situation is, both these sheep and these goats are mixed. They're just like us. And Jacob's flock is just like regular people are. They're a mixture of good and bad. They're a mixture of white and black. In fact, if we want to read Jesus' last judgment back into this, and I don't think we should, but we can at least use it as an illustration, if the goats being black represent the wicked, then by whatever you want to call it, common grace or something, they've got some white in them. There's no sinner destined to hell in this world who doesn't do some good, who doesn't have some good feeling sometimes who doesn't produce things that are worthwhile, that we wouldn't sympathize with. They're still the image of God. They're human beings. They're not all black yet. And there's no sinner saved by grace who is all white yet. We are all sheep that are still kind of dark, but we're sheep. So if you want to pull it that way, 
Then going back to Jacob's mixed flock has something to do with what Israel is going to be like. I've said right along that this flock is a symbol for Israel. It just has to be. All of these goat and sheep passages in Genesis are moving us toward Leviticus. This mixed flock where all the sheep are not quite white and all the goats are not quite black is what Israel is going to be like. It tears and wheat together until the end when it's sorted out. And it's what we're like. And in the providence of God, I think that's why it's this way. And I think that accounts for why the passage keeps saying over and over again, spotted, speckled, dappled, and all that. You know, you would think this language has to be piled up for a reason. It could just say spotted goats and leave it at that, dark sheep and leave it at that. But you'll remember last week, these words recurred over and over again. And we'll see again today, they recur over and over again. There's an emphasis on it. And so I think that that may be what's in the background. I tried to put myself in the position of a person thinking about this symbolism in terms of the ancient world. And sheep that are mixed, goats that are mixed, and even together in one flock. But then it's like tares and wheat. And I think that may be part of what's here. In fact, I'm fairly certain that one way or the other, in a deep way, that's part of what's here. Ultimately, the flocks are not going to be spotted. They're not going to be mixed. Ultimately, the saints will all be white and the wicked will all be black. Goats also, by the way, in Leviticus 4, goats represent the magistrates. And you can be a good goat and be a good magistrate. But sheep tend to travel in flocks and goats tend to be more loners. And goats are more domineering. And for Jesus to speak of the wicked as goats means that they are like the Pharisees. They're domineering. They're bad goats. And the righteous being good goats are actually have just become sheep under the shepherd. At any rate, this probably one of those things you could study for several hours just in going through all the biblical material on it. But I wanted to come back to that and say, I'm fairly well convinced that this mixed flock here has something to do with human nature. It's because these represent people. They will increasingly represent people. People are mixed. And this is a community that's mixed. And all of this is moving us toward the giving of the law. So, so much for that from last week. It would be nice if I could figure out the business of looking at striped trees to produce these mixed flocks, but this is as far as I've been able to go with it. We did say last time, but this is just science. There's no superstition here. This is scientific in the same way that electricity is scientific. It just happens to be a science that's erroneous and doesn't work. But God caused it to work, and so there you are. There's no implication of superstition here. It's just what we would call an error. And we also pointed out that even from a scientific standpoint, if you breed the stronger pure black goats, they're the ones who will have more hybrid vigor and there's going to be more genes for spots and speckles and stripes in them than there are in the wheat goats. But that doesn't account for everything because in the course of only six years, Jacob's flocks go from zero to a vast number. Jacob started off with nothing. So the first year, all he had was black goats and white sheep. Now, maybe somebody can tell me, these animals have children once a year, right? So you get the impression that if it's once a year or maybe two or three times, yeah. 
Well, it's going to be relevant to the changing of the wages, as we'll see in a minute. That's why I asked the question, and I should have researched it better. But yeah, how long does it take for the lambs to grow up to become pregnable? Well, see, none of us know, and I should have looked it up. I'll try to figure that out and come back for the next time. At any rate, six years is not a whole lot of time. Even if we assume that these animals mated twice a year, they're just moving out into spotted and speckled, striped and dark real fast. So fast that Laban has time to change the deal several times. So even accounting for hybrid vigor and using the stronger animals that have more genetic potential is not going to in any way account for the kind of transformation that we see happening here. The man burst forth with wealth exceedingly, yes, exceedingly. He came to have many flock animals and maids and servants and camels and donkeys. This happens in six years. Jacob goes from having nothing to having human beings that he's purchased or indentured one way or another, camels, very expensive. And he's gotten wealthy at an astronomical rate. So the miraculous side of this is real clear. And I suppose if we were closer to animal life, it'd be even more apparent to us how miraculous this change is. Now, we come to our section today, which is verses 2 to 16, and I'll read it. And I think we can get through it without any difficulty. And Yaakov saw by Levan's face, behold, he was no longer with him as yesterday and the day before. And Yahweh said to Yaakov, Return to the land of your fathers, to your kindred. I will be with you. And Yaakov sent and had Rachel and Leah called to the field to his animals and said to them, I see by your father's face, indeed he is no longer toward me as yesterday and the day before. But the God of my father has been with me. You yourselves know that I have served your father with all my might. For your father has cheated me or mocked me and changed my wages ten times over. Yet God has not allowed him to do me ill. If he said thus, the speckled ones will be your wages, all the animals would bear speckled ones. If he said thus, the streaked ones will be your wages, all the animals would bear streaked ones. Remember we said last time that probably means a black sheep with white shoes, white stripes on the bottom of the leg. So God has snatched away your father's livestock and give them to me. He snatched it away. Now it was at the time of the animals being in heat, and I lifted up my eyes, and I saw in a dream, and behold, the he-goats that mount the animals, streaked, speckled, and spotted. And God's messenger, the angel of God, said to me in the dream, Yaakov. And I said, Here am I. And he said, Pray lift up your eyes and see. All the he-goats that mount the animals, streaked, speckled, and spotted. For I have seen all that Levine is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar, where you vowed a vow to me. And now arise, get out of this land, return to the land of your kindred. And that's what Jacob says to his wives. Rachel and Leah answered him, and they said to him, Do we have a share and inheritance in our father's house? Is it not as strangers that we are thought of by him? For he has sold us and eaten up, yes, eaten up our purchase price. Indeed, all the riches that God has snatched away from our fathers as a snatch away again, they belong to us and our children. So now whatever God has said to you, do it. That's where I think, because this is a long narrative, discourse boundaries are not always easy to discern, but this 
seems to be where it stops and the statement Laban arose and went off. When we get to it next week, it appears to me and it appears to the commentators that I've been working with that this begins the next section right there. So, what do we have here? Well, there's no great literary structure here, except there are some parallels back and forth in the passage that naturally flow from the events. Laban is against Jacob. Yahweh tells him to leave. Jacob tells his wives how Laban has cheated him, how he's been against him in verses 4 to 9. Jacob tells his wives how God has told him to leave. The wives tell Jacob how Laban has cheated them, and the wives tell Jacob to obey God and leave. So there's that rhythm in it, and even within that, there's kind of a refrain. Jacob saw Laban's face. Yahweh said, leave. I see by your father's face he's against me, but God has been with me. Your father has cheated me, but God has not allowed him to do me ill. He cheated me with speckle and streak, but God snatched away your father's livestock. So this Laban did this but God, Laban God, Laban God, Laban God, Laban God, works through here. One word that occurs here a bunch of times, not any significant number of times, but it occurs throughout this passage, is the word father. Except for the initial reference to Laban, throughout the rest of the passage, it's your father and the women say our father. Laban is the father. And then God is the God of Jacob's fathers, and he's told to go home to the land of his fathers. So there's a contrast to fathers here. And the word God, referring as it does not so much to the covenant as to the creator and Lord of life, is the God of power here, who, as we saw before, God or Elohim was the one bringing the children to the wives, for the most part, that was the name used. And God, Elohim, is the one multiplying his flock. And we always want to at least try to reflect on why the word Elohim rather than Yahweh is used in a particular place, and the focus being on power and fatherhood. Remember that when Leah was having children, Yahweh opened her womb. Yahweh has seen my affliction when she has Reuben. Yahweh has seen that I've been hated. I will give thanks to Yahweh. But that's all husband language. Since Leah's husband doesn't like her, she begins to take Yahweh as her husband, which is what she needs to do. Then after that, we have Rachel saying, I can't have children. And Jacob says, am I like God to give you children? And when Rachel starts to have children, she thanks God. Well, when her servant starts to have children. And when Zilpah has children, Leah refers to God. And then we have the love apple story. And God kept Rachel in mind, and God hearkened to her, and God removed the reproach. God is more of a father name here. So Yahweh is a covenant name, God is the creator father name. And here in this passage, we got two fathers. We got Laban, and we got God. The God of Abraham, and the God of the land where they're supposed to go as opposed to Laban. And I think that's part of what's in here. The word God appears seven times in this paragraph. And that seems to be deliberate. And you're almost surprised at some of the uses of it that seem to be there deliberately to point to his fatherhood and power and to make sure we get seven times. <laughs> Let's just read it and look at the facts and sequences of events. There are a few other things to point to. Verse 2. Jacob saw by Laban's face 
Behold, he was no longer with him as yesterday and the day before. That's what it says. We could say his face was no longer toward him, but in Hebrew it says his face was with him, and that's because in verse 3, Yahweh says, I will be with you. It's the same preposition, and in this close connection there's an obvious contrast. And this business of seeing and seeing the face governs this passage. Jacob sees Laban's face, and he sees the Laban's against him, but then he has a vision in verses 10 and 12 where he sees, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream. And God's angel said, pray, lift up your eyes and see all these things that are happening. And then God also says, I have seen what Laban is doing to you. So Laban, is uh, his eyes and his face are against Jacob. God's eyes and God's face are in favor of him. And Jacob sees. Jacob sees that Laban's against him. Jacob sees that God is for him. So, again, that unifies the passage here in terms of perception. When Laban's against you, then maybe God is for you. It may not look that way. Verse 3. And Yahweh, this is the only time the covenant name is used here, Yahweh said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. This is the covenant God is keeping the covenant with Jacob. And as we'll see in just a moment, he's the God of Bethel. And it was back at Bethel that God made this particular covenant with Jacob. And it's all referred to here. And the God who promises things at the beginning of the covenant now comes to fulfill the promises. And he has. All of the things that God had promised to Jacob, he has fulfilled. And now it's time for Jacob to fulfill his vow. He says, return to the land of your fathers. And I've already mentioned contrast Laban as the father in this passage. I will be with you as Emmanuel, God with us. This is something that throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes our translations don't give it to us as immediately as we would like, but they're there. Verse 4. So Jacob sent and had Rachel and Leah called to the field to his animals. Both times it's Rachel and Leah, not Leah and Rachel. I think that means Rachel is first wife. The narrator here has written it this way. We would expect Jacob maybe to refer to Rachel first if she's his favorite, but the narrator, Joseph or whoever, Moses, whoever puts this text in its final form, has left it that Rachel is listed before Leah, and so he'd been talking about that. Here's another evidence of it. Jacob shows wisdom in consulting his wives. He probably had to, I mean, if he was going to make this kind of a move and they refused to go along with it, he would have been in trouble. But he makes sure that they are completely on his side before he does anything. And I think somewhere in the background there is the fact that Jesus doesn't do anything without consulting us because we're his wife. It says in the New Testament, all of God's people are prophets. Of course, we're not talking about prophets, we're talking about bride, but ultimately if we're all prophets and we're all part of the bride, it comes out to the same thing. But Amos, Amos 3.7, Surely Yahweh God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. He consults the prophets. In the sense, Yahweh doesn't do anything without consulting the prophets. And we see that in chapter 7 of Amos. Yahweh God showed me this locust swarm, and I said, Master Yahweh, please pardon how can Jacob stand? And Yahweh changed his mind. It shall not be, says Yahweh. Then Master Yahweh showed me, and behold, Master Yahweh was going to send fire. And I said, Master Yahweh, please stop. How can Jacob stand for he is small? And 
Yahweh changed his mind. And then he showed me, and then the third time, the judgment comes. So, this consultation, the husband with the wife, Jesus with his church through prayer, is part of what's here, I think. We can say it's common sense. Don't run off and make any huge changes without talking to your wife about it. But it's also part of the deep structure of the human race and the way God deals with us. Jacob, God reveals stuff to us and gets us to agree with him and then moves, faces moves. It says that he called Rachel and Leah to the field to the animals. I think the animals are mentioned here because they're going to be so important in what Jacob has to say because of their symbolic relationship to his whole family. I mean, it could have just said he called them to the field. By adding he called them to the animals, there seems to be something being set up here and animals are mentioned. And he says, I see by your father's face. Indeed, he is no longer toward me. There's a different expression to see, toward me, not with me. The contrast between Laban with me and God with me is earlier. Now it's, his face is no longer toward me as yesterday and the day before. But the God of my father has been with me. Jacob's father, as we've seen, is Abraham. That's in 28.13. Again, Laban, your father is against me. The God of my father is with me, is the contrast here in the phrasing. Fathers and pro and con. And this is referring, this whole passage is referring back to chapter 28, the vow at Bethel, which we'll be getting to in a second. We've already heard it mentioned. But Yahweh was standing at the top of the ladder and he says, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Jacob is the new Isaac and Abraham is his father. It's probably the preeminent thing to remember here. And he says, You yourselves know how I've served your father with all my might, but your father mocked me. Really, is what it says. It's the same word used when Delilah wakes Samson up and mocks him. It's not a very common word. So it, it obviously implies he cheated me, but since Jacob is in a weak position, he's ridiculing me. The Bible says don't put a stumbling block in front of the blind and don't curse the deaf. But in non-Christian societies, that's very common as what they call practical jokes. I think it's very funny to trip a blind person up. A mural Muslim country, and that's the humor. Persecuting people who are poor, making fun of their infirmities is what humor is like. And to some extent, we still have it. I mean, ethnic jokes are a very much milder form of the same thing. But in this really brutal form, it's mocking the person who is in a weak position, taking advantage of him, making sport of him, forcing him to dress up as a fool because he doesn't have any choice because he's got a wife and daughter he's got to take care of. And so you own him and you can make him do what you want. Well, that's the situation here. Laban has used his position over Jacob to make sport with him and change his wages over and over again. Ten times, it says. Well, in six years, I don't think that literally ten times is likely to have happened. The expression is just a figure and just means he's changed my wages repeatedly. Now maybe he did. But this kind of language doesn't have to be pressed to an exact literalness here. If at some point Laban has to realize, hey, we're getting all spotted sheep here. And so he comes and changes it. I'll give you the speckled goats. And then he has to realize we're getting all speckled goats here. 
So he says, well, I'll give you the striped ones. But this does happen ten times in six years. It's pretty difficult to imagine. I mean, there's, you have to have the sheep being born or goats being born and then the time of perception and then Laban realizing that the flock is changing over here and making this change. So it may have been more like four or five times, but symbolically, in a figure of speech, it's a fullness, a totality. But God is with me. There's the refrain. Verses 8 and 9. But that's why I asked the question, how frequently do these generations of animals come? When it talks about the animals being in heat, how often does that happen? If that happens four times a year, then maybe you get a much quicker change of wages. But if it only happens once a year, then this is unlikely to have happened ten times if you've only got six breedings taking place. But this is what had happened, verse 8. If he said thus, speckled ones will be your wages, all the animals would bear speckled. And if he said thus, the streaked ones will be your wages, all the animals would bear streaked. So Laban changed the deal year by year, is what it implies. And we've got basically five years after the first year in which this might happen. But if it happened twice a year in five years, then you'd have ten times. Uh, that's enough on that. Then it says, God snatched away, in verse 9. God snatched away your father's livestock and gave them to me. Really, the Hebrew implies he rescued them, delivered them from wicked Laban, and gave them to Jacob. And this is Exodus-type language. God snatches the righteous out of the hands of the wicked. Jude speaks that way, snatching brands from the fire. And it's going to come up again in just a minute, this snatching idea. We're in an Exodus here. And this exodus has many parallels to the exodus from Egypt. And God delivering somebody out of the hand of the wicked is obviously what that's all about. And in a sense, Jacob is going to be snatched away from Laban's hand because it's when Laban's out having a festival, shearing his sheep, and they're all drunk and staying up real late that Jacob goes out of town. There's a sense in which Jacob's family is going to be snatched away from Laban especially as he leaves town very fast, and the symbolism of the flock being Jacob's family, being his children in a larger sense, being snatched from Laban and delivered to him, is implied here. It's not just some word like transfer. It's a word that implies rescue. It's a word that's used that way other places. It says, It was at the time of the animals being in heat. I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream, Behold, a he-goats and mouthy animals, streaked, speckled, and spotted. This dream occurs while the animals are mating, so that there's no doubt about when it happens or what Jacob is being told. It doesn't happen at some other time of the year. Maybe more reason to that, but at least that much is worth remembering. God's messenger. Now, this is God's angel. Only a context will tell us whether an angel is the divine angel of the Lord or not, but this one is clear enough. The angel says, I am the God of Bethel. So this is the divine angel, the angel of Yahweh, or in this case, the angel of Elohim, which is not what we usually read. You see, this emphasis on God rather than Yahweh is being sustained through the passage. God's messenger said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here am I. And he said, pray, lift up your eyes and see. All the he-goats and mouthy animals are streaked, speckled, and spotted. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, 
For you anointed a pillar, or you vowed a vow to me. So now arise and get out of this land and return to the land of your kindred. The God of Bethel is Yahweh in chapter 28. I mean, it's just the revelation of Yahweh back when this happened, was referred to. He saw the ladder. Yahweh was standing against it. And he said, I am Yahweh, God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And Jacob awoke and said, Why, Yahweh is in this place. Then he calls it the house of God, and he calls it Bethel, house of God. And he says, When I come back, Yahweh will be my God, and I will give a tithe. So now there's his vow. So that's who he's identifying himself as. I don't know that Jacob had any doubt about it. I don't think Jacob was a polytheist and was sitting there wondering which God is this. But he uses this word, identifies himself. And he says, you anointed a pillar and you vowed a vow. We just have to remember what happens on the pillar is the oil represents God's blessing coming down and the vow represents man's return going back up to God. God gives blessing, we give a tithe. God sends the oil down on the pillar, the snow down on Mount Sinai, the oil down on Aaron's beard. And these are images that are used repeatedly in the Bible. And we looked at it when we looked at the anointing of the pillar. Now, this has been going on for 20 years. In spite of all the difficulties here, Jacob is wound up with lots of kids. All of his children are born now, except maybe Dinah. All of his sons are, except for Benjamin. Eleven sons at this point, at the end of the six years. And he's got all these flocks. So God's oil has come down on him, and he's greatly blessed. And now it's time for him to go and pay the vow. That seems to be implied. We discussed the tithe vow, and there's no way to know exactly how Jacob was planning to do that. Did he just take a tenth out of his sheep? every time they were born, and offer them to God on an altar year by year, month by month, possibly. But also there seems to be some indication that you're going to come back to the place where you made the vow and do something. And eventually he does get there. This in chapter 35. He gets back there and he gets rid of all the foreign gods that are in his sheikdom and offers sacrifices. And that would seem to be the ultimate thing. In some sense, come back to where you started out and offer a token sacrifice there as a formal fulfillment of the vow. So that seems to be the dynamics in this passage. Look, let me remind you that 20 years ago we set this up. I would bless you and you would return a tithe to me. Well, I blessed you. And now I want you to come back and return your vow to me in whatever way that was going to be done. And he tells them to leave. Now, Rachel and Leah answer. They have their two cents worth, two ladies worth. Rachel and Leah answered him. They said to him, Do we still have a share and inheritance in our father's house? Well, the answer is no. Laban was not a poor man, so there should have been some inheritance and gifts for his daughters. But they're saying there obviously isn't going to be any. The way he's treated our husband shows what he thinks of us and that we're not going to get any inheritance. We have no interest in it. Jacob, if you think you've got to persuade us to leave Laban, you don't, because we have no interest whatsoever in anything connected with him. We're not going to get anything. And he obviously doesn't love us. Verse 15, Is it not as strangers that we are thought of by him? He has sold us 
eaten up, yes, eaten up our purchase price. Indeed, all the riches God has snatched away from our Father. Remember that in the Egyptian story then, they're going to go and ask for all kinds of riches of the Egyptians and they're going to be given them and then they're going to snatch them away and take them into the wilderness. So this idea is just all foreshadowing. All the riches God has snatched away, they belong to us and to our children, so whatever God has said to you, do it. What God has given to Jacob is only what is rightfully the dowry of his wives. So that's how they see it. And they encourage Jacob to obey God. So they add their amen to his. Now, where it says in verse 15, he has eaten up our purchase price, this is not the technical word in Hebrew for a wife's protection money. We've been over this before, but let's just review it. When you get into a wedding contract between people of means, we're not talking about slaves or people who are absolutely impoverished. I mean, I'm sure that at the lower levels of society, if boy meets girl and boy wants to marry girl, and there probably may not have been much of any money transferred. But among those who had means, the man would have given gifts to the family and what is called a mohar to the brother or father, which is then given to the wife. In other words, they negotiate it, but it's for her and it's her insurance. It's gold and silver rings and coins and jewelry and whatnot that she keeps with her in case her husband dies and she's left alone or in case something happens. It's her protection. Now, Jacob has worked for 14 years for these two women. The other thing is, if a man sells his daughter as a slave, then... We looked at this years ago when we looked at the Exodus. Then he keeps this mohar. And she comes out with nothing. That's the way it is. It's in Exodus chapter 21. If a man's so poor that he has to sell his daughter as a slave, then the man who buys her marries her. Or marries her to one of his sons. That's the way it's phrased. So remember the word slave, servant, in Hebrew, is all the same word. It's this word ebed, and it runs the gamut from the lowest slave to a servant of a royal house of some sort. So it's very flexible. An employee is a servant, an ebed. And so is a lowly slave working in the mines. Well, if a daughter is sold, what that means is the dowry, the money that would have gone to her, is kept by her father, so she doesn't have any money. So the law makes special provisions for her. All right, now what's the situation here? Well, if the father is very poor and the family is starving and so they sell one of their daughters off into marriage, they get money from it, that's a necessity. In a world where you had to eat hand to mouth, depending on how the crops were, that kind of thing could happen. The Bible recognizes it, provides provisions for it. Laban's not like that. Now Jacob has worked for 14 years. So he's got lots of money. He's earned it. Now, all of it has gone to Laban. He hasn't been given anything but room and board for 14 years, for the first seven years, and then for the next seven years to provide for his family. And so some of it would have rightly been Laban's, because the father gets to have some of the gifts. But most of it should have been a mohar for the wife. That should have been building up as money for Leah and Rachel. But it wasn't. 
So what we see in this is that Laban has treated his daughters as if they were girls that he'd sold off as slave girls. Because it says he's taken it all, he hasn't given us any of it. What that means is although Laban is a wealthy man, he's less wealthy than he was, but he's still wealthy, still got sons and an army that he can raise to come chasing after Jacob and all the rest, he's still stolen it all. So he's stolen it and he's treated his daughters like slaves, not like daughters. He's not going to give them any dowry from himself. He's not going to give them any inheritance from himself. And the dowry money that Jacob had earned, part of which should have been for them, a lot of which should have been for them, he's taken it all. So that is part of it here. It's the slavery motif again, as we'll see eventually Coming out after six years is exactly what the law says with respect to slaves. Slave is set free in the sixth year, and that's what's happening here. But the daughters have been considered as slaves. They're considered as strangers, not as real daughters. The word is not the technical word here, however. That's what it refers to. But instead of saying mohar, it says kesef, which means silver. And I just have a few notes here on silver. And the Fox translation is not accurate here. He should have stuck with his principle being very literal. He should say, he has sold us and eaten up, yes, eaten up our silver. And then he could have a footnote saying, this is the purchase price or this is the mohar. Because silver is used in special ways in the Bible. Not always, of course. Sometimes it just means money. But if you consider silver in terms of selling and buying people... It's what's usually used. People are sold for silver. Joseph is going to be sold for silver later on. Basically, the girls are saying he sold us for silver. Joseph returns silver to his brothers. That's the emphasis. They brought the silver. Joseph gives silver back to them. He puts silver in their sacks and all this kind of stuff. Silver, silver, silver. There's an irony there. If we were studying the story of Joseph, we would be noticing that. And that Joseph's cup is silver. This is not my silver cup with which I advise Pharaoh. Emphasis on silver and its use in the Joseph story as a way to trade out the life of a person. Well, something like that is going on here. Silver is the price of a slave woman in Exodus 21.11. That's the passage I've been referring to. And here it says, Exodus 21.7, If a man sells his daughter as a handmaid, she is not to go out like the slaves. If she designated her for himself, he can have her redeemed. If it's for his son that he designates her, then according to the rights of women, he is to deal with her. In other words, this is a wife, a wife contract here. If another he takes for himself, he takes a second wife. Her board, her clothing, and her oil, he is not to diminish. It's always difficult translation. And if he doesn't do those things for her, she is to go out for nothing with no money. Well, it says literally no silver. And again, he's not been quite as literal as I would wish because silver is the price for slaves. And of course, you remember now that 30 shekels of silver is the price for a dead slave in Exodus 21:32, And that comes to bear in Jesus and later on in the prophets. 30 shekels of silver. And you can study it further. I've just got a few other references here. Silver redeems men devoted to the sanctuary in Leviticus 27. If a man has been devoted to the sanctuary and wants to redeem himself so that he doesn't, I mean, the sanctuary says, look, we don't really need you up here, he can buy his way out with silver. 
not just money, kesef, silver. Silver is what redeems the trespass offering. That's the central offering of the sacrificial system, the one that covers high-handed sins and the one that covers original sin. It has to be a male lamb. can't be anything else. It's the one that most pointedly points to Jesus. And it says, you don't really have to, if you want to bring a trespass offering, you don't even really have to bring a lamb and shed its blood. You can just bring silver. Because no animal can really take away sins. And so in this one place, you can ransom yourself with silver instead of with an animal. In Numbers 8, 48-51, when the firstborn sons were replaced by the Levites, the extra leftovers were redeemed with silver. Well, silver has a lot to do with persons. Persons being sold into slavery, persons being redeemed from death, persons being redeemed from it. There's a biblical theme here. It might be fun to spend a month studying, but we're not going to do it. I just wanted to allude to it here. That when they say he's eaten up our silver, that that starts to carry with it some freight, especially later on in Genesis where it's associated with slavery. And the idea seems to be, well, he took silver for us. He didn't give it to us. He kept it for himself. It's a way in which he treated us as slaves. He sold us off to you as if he were a slave wife or a concubine. You see, a concubine technically is a woman who does not have a dowry. She's a real wife, but she doesn't have a dowry. So she is considered a second class or concubine wife. And that's the way they are. And so they really come down in the world and they're ready to leave. Let's close in prayer. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.